0: Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Some of you may have been surprised that we're still singing Christmas music because Christmas is over. But I wanted to do some Christmas music today to underscore the truth that even though December 25th has come and has gone, the relevance of Christmas goes on. It continues. It'll continue into 2016... It will continue for the rest of your life. It will continue for the next five trillion years and beyond. If you're a Christian, the implications of Christmas will reverberate in your life forever. And, And those implications are just as worthy of celebration today as they were this past Friday. To observe Christmas, to really observe the coming of the Christ into the world as a baby... Uh, born in Bethlehem, we've got to reflect on Jesus coming into the world in light of the entire ministry and work of Christ. You cannot isolate the babe in the manger from everything else because the point of Jesus coming into the world has everything to do with what he accomplished through his entire life and through his death and through his resurrection. You can't separate the cradle from the cross. You can't separate the baby in the feeding trough from the empty tomb, it all hangs together and to remove any aspect of Jesus' life and ministry and atoning work from the equation renders Christmas impotent and useless. So Christmas has come, Christmas is gone, so what? What does Christmas mean for you now as you face a new year full of challenges, full of uncertainty? perhaps full of fear and anxiety for the unknown. There may be some of you who have financial fears about 2016. There may be some of you who have fears for our country as we face a very important election. Uh, Maybe others have fears of terrorism. Maybe you've got health challenges. Maybe you have certain spiritual challenges. You look back on 2015 with disappointment over your failures and you wonder, can I grow in Christ in 2016? Can I overcome this sin that just keeps keeps hammering at me? Can I be a more mature and faithful disciple for this coming year compared to this past year? Will I be able to make it through the difficulties that are coming my way or that I'm going through even now? You might be thinking, I barely made it through 2015, but I don't know if if I can make it another year going through this. I don't know all the specific challenges and anxieties and fears that you're facing right now. But what I do know is that every single person in this room could use some extra hope. Some extra reassurance, some extra encouragement as we face a new year. And I cannot think of a, a better scripture right now to share with you to calm your fears and ease your anxieties than Romans chapter eight. In Romans chapter eight, we are clearly given the ongoing, continuing effects of Christmas, the ongoing, glorious implications of the coming Christ into the world. And and my prayer is that God will speak to you through the Scriptures this morning and will give you all the assurance you need to help you face 2016 and beyond. Now, Pastor Steve already read the first part of Romans 8 a few minutes ago, and so let's read the rest of it right now. If you will please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're going to start at verse 31, picking up right where Steve left off, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. In the mountain range of Scripture, there, there are many peaks that are very high, and Romans 8 is a, is a high mountain peak in the mountain range of Scripture. What incredible encouragement that you give to us in this chapter. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about some of these truths in Romans 8, that you will not let me mess it up that you will not let me get in the way of the powerful words that you have for every single believer in this room this morning. And, Father, there may be some this morning who are not believers, and I'm confident you have a word for them as well. And so, Father, I pray that through the power of Scripture, through the power of the Spirit, that you would bring the word home to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 8 shows us a, a, a number of things about what Christmas means for the people of God. And the first thing that I would like us to consider is that Christmas means that God is for His children. Christmas means that God is for His children. This is significant because, let's be honest, sometimes we Christians struggle with doubt and, and we wonder whether God's really on our side. Sometimes we can be doubtful that God is looking out for our best interest. And sometimes it seems if God is not, maybe not even mindful of our situation and, and even mindful of what we're going through. And if you struggle sometimes with those kinds of feelings, guess what? You're in good company. Consider David. A righteous man who loved God and yet hear his anguish in Psalm 13 where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Or he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or how about Job? We got to know him a little bit this past summer. Job was the godliest man of his time, and yet when he sees his life falling apart around him, when it seems to him like the world is caving in, he cries out in Job chapter 6, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks their poison, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. It's not that only that Job feels like God's forgotten him, it's worse that perhaps God is actually against him. And what could be more terrifying than that? Some of you can identify with the struggles of David and the struggles of Job as they wrestle with God's apparent absence. Some of you may even feel that way right now. Many of us are familiar with that kind of a struggle. I know what that struggle's like. I've had dark seasons in my life where I need to be reminded over and over again of the truth. I need to be reminded for a couple of reasons. One because I'm I'm hard-headed and I also need to be reminded because sometimes the pain of life can cause me to forget which is why I need Romans 8:31 and verse 32. And in your darkest moments you need it also. These two verses will be the main anchor of the message today and and they they're, they're two verses that I as your pastor I'm urging you to carry these two verses with you into 2016. Look with me at these two glorious verses where the Apostle Paul says, starting in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christmas is the ultimate proof. That God is for us and not against us. Because God sent Jesus into the world, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, for what? Look at those first words of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christmas comes... And we celebrate the birth of Christ. But that birth of Christ was just the beginning of God the Father giving him up for us. Paul says God didn't spare his own son. Which means he didn't spare him from what was to come after he was born. There's an interesting story in the book of Luke chapter 2. Peter read it at the top of the service. And in that story, after his birth, a few weeks after his birth... The baby Jesus is taken to the temple in Jerusalem by Joseph and Mary, and they encounter an old man named Simeon. And Simeon's been waiting for God's salvation through the Messiah for many years. And he sees the baby Jesus, and he scoops him up in his arms, and he's praising God. And then he turns to Mary and says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That's not something that's typically said at a baby dedication. But Simeon prophetically is looking ahead to, to a time where Mary's soul would be pierced and Mary's heart would be broken years later when her precious baby would grow into a man and one day would be nailed to a cross before her eyes, bleeding and suffering and dying. He says, A sword will pierce through your own soul. And the reason that he can say this confidently is because from the very beginning, God determined that this precious babe in a, in a manger would not be spared, but would go to the cross. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And Paul says that the giving up of His Son, the refusal to spare His Son, is proof that God is for us and not against us. As sinners, as people who have broken God's law and we've rejected Him time and time again, we deserve God's punishment in hell. But Jesus, in His death, was bearing that punishment on behalf of sinners. You know, the greatest demonstration of love for someone is that you would die for them. You'd take a bullet for them. Aren't there people in your life that you'd take a bullet for? But let me ask you this. How many of you would take a bullet for someone who hated and despised you and was at war against you? How many of you would take a bullet to save an ISIS terrorist? Would you do that for an enemy? Bible describes us humans as hating God and despising God and warring and raging against God. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for you. He died for me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then down in verse 10, Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of, Of his son. If you taking a bullet for an ISIS commander seems outrageous to you, that's nothing compared to the spectacularly outrageous act of God not sparing his son for your sake and for his son to willingly go to the cross for your sake. Very often we look around at circumstances, we look around at the hard times we're going through, the pain that we're experiencing. And we allow those things to be the litmus test to help us determine whether God is for us or against us. And so we think, well, things are really bad right now. Things are really hard right now. Nothing in my life is going right. That must mean that God is against me. That's unbiblical. The Bible never tells you to do that. As Christians, there is only one thing we need to be looking at to conclusively determine God's disposition and intentions for us, and that's the cross. Cross. There is no greater proof that God is for you than that, than God not sparing His own Son, letting His own Son be slaughtered so that you could live. Christmas means that God is for His children. Christmas also means that God will give His children all things. God will give His children all things. Look again at verse 32. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Very often Christians struggle with anxiety about all sorts of things. I bet you there's some anxious people in this room right now. We struggle with that. We, we believe in Christ. We're striving to follow God. We're growing in our faith. We, we might even have solid assurance of salvation, And yet we still battle fear and we still battle anxiety. And often our anxiety is rooted in a fear that God will not come through for us. That he will not give us what we need. And so we fear whether or not we're going to have enough material provision. Or we fear certain people. Or we fear certain situations. We may have fears that we will never have the resources or the power we need to be able to kill that one besetting sin in our life that keeps coming back and bringing us down over and over again. Maybe there are some fears you have about 2016 and you just don't know if you have the strength to get through whatever's coming your way. We have all kinds of needs. We have all kinds of fears in regards to those needs. And yet the Apostle Paul gives us the logic of Christmas to do away with our anxiety. Paul here in Romans 8 is using logic. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He starts with reminding us that God has done the hardest thing that we as humans could possibly imagine, which is the giving up of His own Son. Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. Paul uses the words, His own Son, to help us to feel the weight of this kind of language communicates the special bond, the special affection, the deeply powerful love that the father felt for the son. The father did not spare his own son. His own son! Some of you are fathers. Some of you have sons. As much as you love your son, as much as you have affection for your son, as much as it grieves you to see your son hurts, I promise you, that the love that God has for His own Son dwarfs the love that you have for yours. If the sufferings of Christ pierced the soul of Mary, how much more was the heart of God the Father grieved? Surely, infinitely more. And what Paul wants to do in verse 32 is to have us first consider what, from a human perspective, would be the greatest obstacle that our little human brains can wrap around the greatest obstacle that we can dream of, the biggest obstacle that might have prevented God from sending Christ into the world to purchase our salvation. And the biggest obstacle would have been God's love and affection for His own Son. Would God take His own Son, whom He loved so much, and turn Him over to be betrayed to be mocked, to be slandered, to be spit upon, to have flesh torn from his back, to have nails pierce his hands and his feet, to hang naked, humiliated, and shamed, hanging from a piece of wood like, like a slab of meat. And then on top of that, would the father, upon seeing his son treated this way, Would the father refrain from rescuing his son in that very moment? Would he really turn his face away from his son and and treat Jesus like he was not a son? And would the father not only treat Jesus like he was not a son, but would he treat Jesus like an enemy? After Jesus was mocked, after Jesus was tortured, after he was beaten within an inch of his life, after Jesus was spat upon and crucified by evil men, after all of that, after man does his worst to Jesus, would God then do his worst to Jesus in that very moment by smiting him with every ounce of wrath that he has? Would the Father do that? Would he put the sin of the world on Jesus And would the Father then take all of the anger and hatred he has toward that sin and pour out his horrifying wrath on Jesus? Would he allow his Son to go through hell? And Paul, in Romans 8, answers that question with a resounding yes. He who did not spare his own Son. The crucifixion, my friends, was not an accident. You know, I remember uh, earlier this year, I was sharing Christ with a with a person who did not know Christ and did not know the Bible, and you know, he heard a little bit about Jesus being killed, and he was shocked. He was shocked when I, when I told him that that was all part of the plan. He was very surprised at that. The crucifixion wasn't an it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. Instead, Acts chapter 2 verse 32 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. Because of Christmas. Because God did the greatest thing. Because he did the absolute hardest thing that we could fathom. Again, hard according to our human reasoning. Hard according to our understanding. If he overcame the biggest obstacle that we can imagine if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see that logic? Does that make sense? If God can do the the biggest thing, the hardest thing, then surely he is able to give us everything else we need. If God did not withhold the best thing from us, the most valuable treasure that he could offer up to us, namely his son then we can have rock-solid certainty that God will not withhold any good thing from us. The act of God giving up His Son is the anchor that grounds all of the promises in the Bible that God will give us everything that we need. It's the anchor of Psalm 84.11 that says, no good thing does He withhold from His people. It's the foundation for Ephesians 1.3 that says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's the reasoning that helps us really understand and bank on Jesus' promise in Matthew 6 where he says do not be anxious about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And how can we know that God will really give us all these things? Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the logic of Christmas. The 17th century Puritan John Flavel writing about Romans 8, said this, How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spirituals or temporals from his people? He means spiritual or temporal blessings. He goes on to say, How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely if he would not spare his own son one stroke one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. As you face 2016, as you face uncertainty and challenges and fears about the future, hold on to the logic of Christmas that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, Christmas means that God is for his children. Christmas means that God will give his children all things, but there's something else that Christmas means as well. Christmas means that there is no condemnation for God's children, no condemnation for his children. The whole purpose of God sending His Son into the world was for Him, His Son, to be condemned in the place of sinners so that all who believe in Him are no longer condemned. And so look down with me, Romans 8, verse 33. This is is kind of Paul's conclusion to all of this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? In other words, Jesus does not condemn us because it was he who died for us in the first place. And and because he is raised from the dead and, and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us, praying to the Father on our behalf. And because Jesus lives forever, that intercession goes on and on and on and on and on. Unlike the inferior priest in the Old Testament who lived and then they died. His intercession goes on and on. And that means that our freedom from condemnation is not just a one-time thing. That goes on and on and on. It's a forever, it's a, it's a forever thing. You're forever free. You're forever forgiven. And that's why at the top of the chapter, uh, verse 1 in Romans 8, just, Paul just exclaims, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? Isn't that worth amening? There may be somebody in this room who is a Christian, and and, and yet they're battling thoughts of condemnation. Maybe you feel weighed down by your sin. Maybe you feel soiled and dirty and unclean this morning. Maybe you feel that way because of sins committed recently. Maybe you feel that way because sins of years ago keep coming back to haunt you. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to fight against those thoughts in your mind. Those words of accusation, those pointing fingers, those whispers in your mind that are saying, I know what you did. God knows what you did. You're wrong. You're guilty. You're dirty. You're unclean. And you're condemned. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know that those words are not from God. Those those words are uh, uh, from the one whom the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, Those are words from your enemy, the devil. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, Old Testament. I'm going to flash it up on the screen in a moment, so if you have a hard time finding it, don't worry. But in Zechariah 3, we see Satan doing what he does best, accusing And Satan here is is pictured as a prosecuting attorney. He functions here in a similar way to uh, what we saw in the book of Job earlier this summer. uh, Accusing, pointing fingers, declaring guilt. And let's see how God deals with Satan's accusations. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you! Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, "Remove the filthy garments from him." And to him he said, "Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Iniquity, big word, just means sin. I've taken your iniquity away from you." and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. It's a great scripture. Now, what's the point here? Was Satan's accusations false? Was Satan lying about Joshua's sin? Absolutely not. Scripture says that Joshua's clothes were filthy. Satan was absolutely right. Joshua was unrighteous. Joshua was filthy. But the point is that the devil's accusations have no power over the one whom God is determined to make clean. And so we have this imagery of Joshua having these disgusting excrement-covered clothes on. But then there is a command to have these filthy clothes removed from him and have new, fresh, clean clothes put on him. So now Joshua is viewed as clean and righteous but it is not a righteousness of his own. Joshua, rather, is clothed and covered with somebody else's righteousness. He is wrapped with clothes that did not belong to him, but belonged to God. If you're in Christ this morning, you need to recognize that as the devil accuses you of all of your sins, and if you're like me, there is a laundry list of them, believe me, you need to remember that in response, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen me the Lord has chosen Steve. The Lord has chosen Mark. The Lord has chosen Paul. The Lord has chosen believers. Are they not brands plucked from the fire? And God has taken you, and He's taken me, and He's removed our filthy clothes, and He's clothed us with new garments. And those garments are the righteousness of Christ, and the clothes are yours forever. You're forever forgiven. And what is the grounds of the confidence that we can have in our position before God? In our cleanliness before God? What is it that we can hold on to that gives us the confidence we need that we are no longer condemned? Again, it's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you noticing a pattern here? There's a verse here I want you to know, to memorize, to get into your heart for 2016. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including the freedom from condemnation forever? Christmas means there is no condemnation for his children. But here's something else. Christmas means that God's love is powerfully working in the lives of his children, always. The father not sparing his own son gives us the confident expectation in God's promise that there will never, ever be anything in our lives that will ultimately destroy us. Is that not a cool promise? And and let's be honest. There are many things that come into our lives that make us want to say, It's over. I'm finished. I'm done. I'm not going to make it. Pain's too great setbacks too big, loss is too overwhelming, grief's too unbearable, my own sin is too much. We all struggle with these things. It's the things that keep us awake at night. It's the things that cause you so much stress that that you begin to physically hurt. It's the thing that, that ties your stomach up in knots. It's the things that plunge you into depression. It's the things that send you over the brink into despair, and it seems like there's no hope, and you even begin to question if God even loves you or if He even cares. But Christmas is a reminder that there is hope, that God does love you, and you will not be ultimately destroyed. You will come through this, I promise you. Why? Because God is for you and not against you. Verse 35, Paul says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul, in Romans 8, wants you to know that none of the horrible trials and difficulties and afflictions that come into your life will separate you from Christ's love. But but he actually wants you to know more than that. There are indeed things that, when viewed from one perspective, seem almost certain to overwhelm us and destroy us. Some of you are going through things like that right now, and you're fearful about what 2016 is going to bring as you face those things. But the Word of God says that His children will not be ultimately destroyed by any of, any of these things that come into our lives. As a matter of fact, here's where it gets cool, the promise is just the opposite, that the things that threaten to destroy us, the things that threaten to overwhelm us, will ultimately be turned around for our flourishing and for our good. As a matter of fact, just glance up a few verses to that spectacular promise in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, including those things that you're so scared of, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Even the darkest days of your life, And the deepest pain of your life cannot stop God's good plans for you. As a matter of fact, they end up being turned around and serving to bring those very good plans of God for your life to full fruition. Joseph realizes this, doesn't he, in the book of Genesis, after being betrayed by his brothers... After being lied about, after being made a slave, after being mistreated for years, he he sees on the back end of all of his trials how God was working in every bit of his pain and every bit of his affliction to bring about a good outcome. And That's why he can turn to his wicked brothers and tell them that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That was true not only in Joseph's life, but it's true in the lives of, of all of God's people. It's true in your life. Now, that's a big promise. That's a pretty tall order that God is working all things together in your life for good. So, how can we have confidence in that promise? We can have confidence because on that very first Christmas long ago, God gave us the very best and greatest gift, Jesus With the purpose of Him dying for you. And therefore, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The trials, the tribulations that are coming into your life right now, they will not conquer you. Instead, you will conquer them. Verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Merry Christmas. Now, you may be saying, I notice I, I notice that you keep emphasizing that these assurances are for God's children. Christmas means that God is for His children, Christmas means that God will give his children all things. Christmas means there's no condemnation for his children. It means that God's love is powerfully working in the lives of his children. And so all this begs the question how can I become a child of God? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad I asked for you. Because that's what you should be asking. The Gospel of John reminds us that Christmas also means that people who are on the outside, people who are not in the family of God, people who are weighed down by their sin and by their guilt, those people can actually become a child of God. Isn't that not amazing? The Bible says that Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So receive Jesus this morning. As your Lord. Trust him. As your savior. It's not rocket science. God has made it beautifully simple. And show that you trust Jesus. By turning away from your old life of sin. Your old life of rebellion. Against God. And, and seek instead to go God's way. It's so much better than what you plan for your life anyway. And show you trust him. By receiving why he came into the world in the first place. To die for sinners like you and me. Trust that his death on the cross paid the penalty for your sins. And ask for his cleansing. Ask for his forgiveness. And you will find that that condemnation that has been over your head your whole life will be forever removed. And you will be forever his child enjoying the benefits of being his child forever. And so what shall then we say? to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the encouragement from Romans chapter 8 And even now, Holy Spirit, I ask that You would move in the hearts of people this morning. Even now, would You impress the the truth of Your Word on hearts and minds? And will people walk away this morning blessed and more encouraged than when they walked in this morning? May unbelievers repent and believe the gospel. May believers have an increase in confidence in Your loving care for us, because You've already done the very best thing that You could do, which is offer up Your own Son. And as we hold on to that truth, that You offered up the very best thing, give us the confidence then, moving forward into 2016, that everything else, taking care of all of our needs, that's a piece of cake after doing what You did on the cross. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen.